Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. I think free speech has been the best tool in human history for innovation, wealth creation, understanding, and this is the least appreciated one of all. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Today, I am joined by author, teacher, I mean, you're president of foundations here, Greg Luke Yanov. Welcome. Woo-hoo. Thanks for I having me. I did it, right? I got the yeah, name. Perfect, yeah. Woo, I'm basically Russian now. <laughs> I wanted to give context to the listeners of like what drew me to your work, and I've expressed a lot on the podcast about how everybody needs to read Coddling of the American Mind. When it was written, it was very important, and I feel like what you guys were onto when you wrote it in the work that you do, it has just been exacerbated or it seems like it's been amplified. So I'm curious what drew you to the work in working with free speech and all that kind of stuff, because you're the, is the right term, the president, you're the president and CEO of the Foundation of Individual Rights and Expressions of FIRE. You also have the book Unlearning Liberty, Kansas Censorship, and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech and Fires. You also have a guide to free speech on campus. So, I mean, there, there's so m- your your work is in this space of free speech, and it seems like there's a lot of controversy about free speech. So, how did you get into it? Well, you know, I'm I'm in, I'm in a, in a sense a sort of typical first generation American. Both my parents are immigrants. Um, you know, grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of other immigrant kids and first generation um, Americans. 
And one, you definitely come in with a sense of sort of like what's special about the country, um, which is really always reinforced by where people were coming from. Um, my, you know, my, my mother is Irish by way of Britain um, and thinks of herself as British. Um, but my dad is Russian by way of Yugoslavia. So my grandfather fought in the Bolshevik Revolution. We were serfs who made good, sometimes dismissed as kulaks, you know, a, a success story in any other country and murdered by the millions in the, by the Soviets. Uh, but my dad grew up in Yugoslavia. Those kind of experiences really make you appreciate freedom of speech. Uh, so it's something that I, I always kind of felt like uh, this is something that Americans are lucky enough to take for granted. Um, but nobody, you know, um, who, who has, you know, uh, a history of, of their families dealing with authoritarians um, or totalitarians uh, take it for granted. Um, and so I was already pretty jazzed about it. Also, frankly, growing up in an environment where there were, you know, the other kids, uh, you know, in my neighborhood, they're from Peru, they're from Vietnam, they're from Korea, they're, they're from, um, you know, even other parts of the United States, like Puerto Rico or the American South. Like uh, in that environment, it, free speech kind of almost automatically becomes the rule because you can't guess what the, um, you know, what the things that, you know, Danny Nguyen's, you know, dad think you shouldn't say or Nelson Bledo's mom thinks you shouldn't say. The melting pot aspect of it actually makes you automatically kind of like a little bit more pro-free speech to begin with. But then I went to uh, undergrad and I was a journalism major. And man, do you see that in action? If you try to be a journalist, they uh, people come into your office every day mm -hmm. um, to try to tell you you have to uh, pull back this story or or cancel this, <laughs> even though that wasn't the word at the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you don't get rid of this journalist or this columnist. Uh, so I went to law school to specialize in First Amendment law. And I took every class at Stanford Law School offered on First Amendment. When I ran out, I, I, I interned or externed is, was the word for some reason at the yeah. ACLU of Northern California in 1999. I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. Um, so this is, you know, I, I feel this like is free speech jam. is why I was put on the earth. <laughs> yeah. And well, what have you know? So in your time, so you have this passion for it based on ancestral experience of not having it, which of course I think you're right. We can take it for granted and it's only when you don't have it anymore that you recognize the value of it. But of course the fighting for free speech came from the lack of it. So it's interesting that we almost do these circular experiences in human history where we, you know, I think of like, the, uh, after World War II and the conversation about Nuremberg and informed consent. And it seems like we just decided to suspend on some level medical ethics for the last two or three years. And, and now are, I hope that we come back to some semblance. But have you noticed this with free speech now that there is this, because it seems like even this conversation that's going on on Twitter right now, which I'm sure oh, yeah. you're all aware of, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's like, is there a line where free speech, it, there is something that should be censored or not allowed? And and how, how does one determine that? I'm curious, because if it's, if I'm offended by it, I will say I don't want people to say those things or be allowed to. But to someone else, they might be offended by what I say. So exactly. of course, that's true. Of course, some uh, at the uh, the opposite of every position. I call my blog the eternally radical idea. And what I'm getting at with that is that freedom of speech is very unusual in human history. It's actually almost always on the losing side if you look at the grand scope of history. Um, and it was, you know, um, the printing press and nascent 
democracy movements that actually gave it this sort of popular power. Um, and, and I think it's a you know beautiful, powerful thing. Mm-hmm. But usually I call it censorship gravity, like a black hole. We're being pulled back to um, you know the guardian class, more or less, saying like less and less freedom of speech. And when I, uh, I, I do something that's considered very rude in constitutional law circles, I go to Europe and instead of saying, well, you guys have it right with all of your speech regulations and America is just foolish and one day we'll be as enlightened as you, I go, no, we actually have it right and you're doing it all wrong when it comes to free, <laughs> uh, to, 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 to free speech. And But what I'm saying is not that um, we have some – I try to explain to them, we don't have this crazy system you think we do. We have some of the best thinkers in, in, in American law and some of the best philosophers, period, as far as I'm concerned, like people like Oliver Wendell Holmes and Louis Brandeis and Justice Robert Jackson, you know, talking – about how do you have freedom of speech in the real world? So things yeah. like threats aren't protected, harassment's not protected, um, you know, incitement to imminent lawless action is not protected. When um, Elon Musk talked about taking over Twitter or buying Twitter, I wrote a letter saying, like, listen, you're a private company. You do not have to, and nor, nor do I advocate you should have to abide by First Amendment norms. However, there's a lot of well-thought-out standards in there that prevent you from the trap of just doing it based on your own subjective feeling yeah. and judgment of what you think is offensive. And even when I go over to Europe, I talk about the what, what, what I call the bedrock principle, which is from a Supreme Court case, uh, that the thing that distinguishes American law more than anything else when it comes to freedom of speech in the world is we have a bedrock principle that you can't ban something simply because it's offensive. And this is something that you really learn when you grow up in with genuine multiculturalism because offensiveness is incredibly subjective and it changes it really from person is. to person it changes from year to year it's different between economic classes genders everything um so it's too it, it it's too squishy it's too malleable uh, to base that uh, on it and that's the major difference um so you know, I'm always saying it's like, listen, we have this very well thought out system that's that sometimes gets a bad rap because people don't understand it that well one I'm curious because I think when we advocate for free speech or the ability to express ourselves even ways that are offensive, mm-hmm. uh, which I totally get what you're saying about time. It, it's subjective culturally. Like I went on a medical leave once when I broke my leg. And when I came back, I hadn't been, you know, I normally played high level soccer. I came back, I was put on a bit of weight. And I went to a doctor's office of doctors I used to call on and customers. And uh, they're Chinese. And she was like, you're getting fat, Mark. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow, good to see you. I'm healed. And I was telling my one of my best friends who's Chinese, he's like, oh, yeah, culturally, we don't fuck around. Like, we'll tell you that you're fat. My mother had the weird kind of like lower class British sort of like Irish girl kind of thing where she was she had this exaggerated sense of politeness. Yeah. And my my dad is is Russian. So he has this like exaggerated sense of honesty. And as he would say, politeness is a form of deception. It's so funny. <laughs> well, my Croatian friend, I used to think she very was very blunt. blunt. Yeah. And when she gave me context, she said, we don't have the fluffy words you Canadians use and need. And I was like, yeah. And so it, culturally, there's context. Time, which, of course, like you think of someone who wrote a book, like, is it the cat in the hat guy who they wanted to cancel? Oh, Dr. Seuss, yeah. Right. And and the Mr. Potato Head, like when you they want to cancel because of gender, you know, because of gender assignment to Mr. Potato Head, but <laughs> sorry, you're right. And Kevin Hart getting for tweets in 2004. Now, granted, you can't. I don't think you can take what was culturally 
acceptable in 1842 and put it with the same rigorous lens today. So I'm curious because a lot of the pushback I hear to free speech is you're advocating for racism. You're advocating for a sem- to be a semi, you know, you're advertising, advocating for all these things. And I'm curious, what is, how do you handle that one? I think that um, there's been a campaign um, on campus started about the year after the launch of the free speech movement in Berkeley in 1964, there was a very, I didn't realize how influential he was at the time, um, Herbert Marcuse, who was considered sort of the guru of the left, um, who wrote this piece called Repressive Tolerance, talking about in the truly equal society, we'd actually be so, um, uh, we wouldn't have free speech, we'd have, uh, we'd actually go after regressive speech, which he, which he explicitly defined as conservative speech, as, as right-wing Interesting, speech. yeah. Um, and, then, and it's still thinking, and I think it's a problem that we have people who still use the term liberal to mean two very different groups. And I, I consider myself like a, a, a libertarian lefty. Same. But, but meanwhile, there's the sort of like utopian top, you know, top down, oftentimes Marxist inspired uh, version of the left, which is which has a very different attitude. And uh, in Europe, you just call them, you, you just use the word socialist, which is, yeah. doesn't have the same kind of pejorative uh, context over here that the, the, the over there that does over here. What I think has been happened is that after year, decades on campus, when you're in power or when you think people like you are likely to be in power, it makes a certain amount of cynical sense to start saying like, actually, you know, if my people were in charge, um, we wouldn't just allow those awful people to talk. Uh, we, we'd have enlightened censorship. We'd have censorship for, for, yeah. for, for good. Altruistic censorship. And that's never the way it works out. Um, censorship is always an exercise of power, which is particularly funny given like the, the whole philosophy of a lot of the people who want to want less speech is that Equal- it's about power equality. dynamics yeah. without seeing their own, uh, their own power. That's fascinating. And I think that we've the way it gets taught to young people is this kind of like, oh, well, um, that's a bad idea, so we shouldn't hear it. And I'm like, no. Is it valuable to know what people think always? Then free speech is always valuable. So I call mm-hmm. this like the lab and the looking glass theory of freedom of speech. That essentially, the, I, I explain like when, when people get to misinformation, you know, right. and you have an uncle that believes that lizard people who live under the Denver airport control everything. Um, one Did of my they? favorite conspiracy <laughs> theories. I didn't even know that one existed. That's a good one. It's a great one. And, and <laughs> if you think about it from this kind of primitive way of thinking about freedom of speech, and I do really think it's a very simplistic way to think about it, that it's like, well, that's that's misinformation. That's a bad idea. That should be banned. And I'm like, you're misunderstanding something. Yes, that's false. Is it valuable to know that your uncle thinks that? You bet it is valuable to, to, to <laughs> yeah, know it is. Even if people think crazy and dumb things, it's better to know. Yeah, it's true. I was uh, listening to a pod with the recent author. I forget his name, but he was talking about conspiracy theories. And essentially from a— Oh, Michael Shermer? That's right. And Yeah, Shermer's a great guy. Yeah, and how he said from an evolutionary benefit, it actually serves us often to believe the conspiracy theory more than not because— in history, when we haven't, we've been sort of hoodwinked or taken advantage of her. And so he made that as one of the arguments. And, you know, I'm Canadian. And I, what I've found in the last three years, especially, but in following your work, and is that I feel, I feel like I was really naive. Like, I really feel like I thought, oh, yeah, Canada would never do certain things to its people. It would never censor speech. It would never do these things. But I've certainly had my uh, my eyes opened in terms of 
these conversations and how much momentum from quote unquote the left, which formerly I would have said, as you said, oh yeah, I would I identify with that branch of government and I would vote for that party. And I've been left with a pretty sour taste in my mouth for that party. And, you know, in speaking out against things like mandates, I was called right wing. And I'm like, wait, outside of speaking out about mandates, is there anything else I do that you define as right wing? No. So am I right wing or is that just an ask? And what is it about the human psyche or need to put things in these categorical boxes? Because do you find in speaking out about free speech that people just automatically think you're conservative? Or right wing, yeah, and 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 it's one of these things where I and I'm not, you know, like I have a I have a, a, a impressive you know left wing pedigree from working at the ACLU. I did refugee law in Eastern Europe. I did um, environmental mentoring for inner city high school kids in Southeast DC, where where I live now. Like I have a, almost em, embarrassingly sort of like lefty um, background, and usually when I present this now, I, I feel like that, that I want to be more direct about how I feel about presenting this stuff. Yeah. I think it's ridiculous, um, that I have to sort of prove I'm not this thing to you. Um, because then what, if I was, you wouldn't ever have to listen to me. That's, right. that, that's the way children think. You instantly are invaluable in your perspective, even though your yeah. expertise completely makes you very credentialed to talk about everything. And this is what's this is one of the things I think has happened in, from higher ed. And and I'm working on a book called very creatively, I'm working on a book called Canceling of the American Mind. Oh, that's good. That's good. With a 22-year-old um uh, Wunderkind uh, Ricky Schlott. She's an amazing young woman um who I'm very I'm very lucky oh, to Oh, I be saw able to. um you guys are doing a live podcast recording in in yeah. at the, by the time this comes out, you'll probably have already done it, but it's in New York uh, with Jonathan and her right yeah jonathan ricky and scott barry kaufman um, that's right it, it should yeah. be and uh it's at the comedy cellar so apparently we're supposed to be god i support. wish i could make it i was like oh that's like a dream <laughs> event it'll be on the podcast though it's gonna be okay, it, great. he's gonna he's gonna be putting it on, on um on air and so i talk about this thing that i call the perfect rhetorical fortress is that on campus, at the same time, we're developing more of this sort of chipping away at the um, sort of romantic appeal that free speech had on the left and chip, very deliberately chipping, uh, chipping away on it. There are also these sort of lazy argumentation tactics that should have been taught out, um, should have been uh, basically represented as just from people uh, from K through 12 on up. Like, no, those are ad hominem <laughs> arguments. Like yeah. if, you, if you're saying um, that I don't have to listen to you because you're conservative, that's childish. That's, that, right. that's, a, that's a silly approach. But in the perfect rhetorical fortress, that's, uh, that's barricade number one, um, is that if you can label something conservative, you don't have to listen to it. And once you have a tactic like that, you shouldn't be surprised that suddenly it's, it, it, and it works and it allows you to win arguments without actually winning arguments. Then next thing you know, my, you know, Jonathan Chait is right wing, all the Harper's letters, people, you know, Everybody, dismissing where's like the, the end? Harp the Harper's letter. I mean, Noam Chomsky <laughs> signed on to a Harper's letter, yeah. and so, and I think people be like, "Well, he's not right wing, but he is. He, he's right adjacent, you know." Um, and and the thing is, there's also the thing that I want to scream is like, "And so what?" At the same time, it's like just like bad people are not necessarily always wrong, and good people are not always necessarily right, even if you think I'm the devil. <laughs> That's fascinating because I think that's also the thing that you guys have spoken about is sort of the righteousness that goes with it, right? Like yeah. there's a moralization. Like if I have a moral this certitude, which which is uncertainty and for th those of us who are genuine, like old, old school liberals, certainty is usually the enemy. Mm. 
Can you speak more to that? Like the moral cert, cert did you say moral certitude? Yeah. Um, th- that essentially, I, I remember having a friend who, who couldn't really believe that I actually take great comfort in the unknowability of the universe. You know, um, yeah. I actually really do. I, I, it's one of the reasons why I like Buddhism. Um, you know, I like some aspects of stoicism, like the ability to look Same. at the world and just be like, in the grand scheme of things, I basically know nothing. And censorship is always um, an act of epistemic, which means relating to knowledge, arrogance. Mm. Um, You know, the reason why people cite John Stuart Mill all the time is because nobody's actually defeated his arguments yet. And and one of the things he is, he always says that the censor takes on um, the position of being infallible. Uh, Because Mm. if they're saying that your argument is not worth anybody hearing, it's like, how, how do you know that? And I've been reading uh, some of these anti-free speech books, including by, you know, someone I actually like personally, Stanley Fish. Um, He wrote this book called The First about the First Amendment, and it is so bad. Um, (laughs) I I, I thought he'd learned something over his career because he did actually study First Amendment law. But he he flips everything on its head by saying, well, first we have to figure out what we need free speech for in the first place, and then we decide what we censor. And if things can actually, you know, work contrary to the values that we think that that free speech should be for, then we can ban it. And I'm kind of like, no, (laughs) you're, you're getting this all like all wrong the, the default is supposed to be free speech like what you're yeah. uh, once you have something like the first amendment censorship is what you have to justify and by the way once you start justifying censorship you realize that it doesn't even usually work very well to to stop ideas from spreading or um and particularly if you're trying to stop conspiracy theories by the way i yeah, say this a lot if you're trying to stop someone who has a conspiracy theory that people are out to get them and silence people like them don't do anything that looks even vaguely like a conspiracy to, to silence and get, and get people like them. Well, I think that's been the conversation about social media, you know, is yeah. now these quote unquote Twitter files are being released. And, you know, these conversations that Twitter had with government officials at the United States. But, you know, I I doubt that Canada didn't have any conversations. And of course they all did. And when free speech, because you were saying you're, if you're a private company, you really don't have to adhere to First Amendment law. When government is actually influencing, does that change? Because I know Alex Berenson's case, he, he's making that argument. And I believe suing both, uh, I forget the guy's name, but um, one of the... Meta- yeah, he's suing like Biden, Fauci, the White House, but he's also suing a medical person from from the government too, who used to work for them. I think he's on the Pfizer board now, shocking. But I'm curious, like, how does that then impact free speech law uh, for for private companies? Uh, Just for listeners, FIRE um, used to be the foundation for individual rights uh, in education. And we were founded back in 99. On June 6th of 2022, we announced that we're now the foundation for individual rights and expression. And we focus on free speech, not just on campus anymore, but all throughout the United States. But we do one additional thing, which is we don't just talk about First Amendment free speech. We talk about free speech culture. We talk Mm. about the idea that free speech is bigger, bolder, and older than the First Amendment. And so we do a lot of considering what's going on in social media. The first Twitter file dump by, by Matt Taibbi, who I have a lot of respect for, we were looking to see if we if there was a smoking gun that the government had crossed the line into what's called state action. Um, mm-hmm. State action means that essentially um, the government has so overstepped the bounds that essentially it's making other people do things that it doesn't have the constitutional power to do. Mm. There are moments in there that it looks pretty close. We don't think it quite makes it. However, 
does that mean, uh, I thought that Matty Iglesias actually put it really well. It's like, okay, okay, guys who are trying to say this is a nothing burger. Imagine it being people you don't like. Imagine it being Trump and um, Rupert Murdoch conspiring together. Oh my God, together. if it was about Trump, it would be. Yeah, you'd rightfully flip out. So like, so some of this uh, use of power, we criticize a lot. And there's been, I mean, Eric Adams said stuff about how uh, we have to police more and, and censor more on social media. Uh, this is coming out of multiple senators. The Biden, Jen Psaki's said things. And we're like, no, no, hold on, hold on. Like you are telling a private corporation that it needs to censor things that are actually, that you can't censor yourself. That's a problem. So definitely there's a moral, there's a moral problem to it. There's also a, a hypocritical problem problem to it, just like um, Matty Iglesias pointed out, that the second round that just came out, um, where Barry Weiss' uh, second Twitter files, shows that all of the sort of shadow banning that people were talking about and all the delisting and all all, all the efforts to make uh, Jay Bhattacharya, I'm probably butchering I've interviewed him, yeah. And, like, and a lot of those things that he ended up, you know, saying, he, he got pretty vindicated. Pretty much right on, I would say, almost all of them. Yeah. And that Watching Twitter uh, suddenly, like people on Twitter being kind of like, oh, we all knew this already. I'm like, no, 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 no. People were saying it's the same thing with cancel culture, where it's kind of like I've been hearing from Twitter experts for years that cancel culture isn't a thing. Meanwhile, like the numbers that we have of professors who have been fired. Yeah. You know, um, the only thing we can compare it to is McCarthyism, where about uh, somewhere estimates vary, but usually the solid number is about 100 professors were fired. Sometimes 130 is the number. We've had way more than that um, fired since 2014. And there isn't a national security crisis like like there was in the 1950s. Like this, we don't have the normal reasons why people you know, freak out and start firing professors for what, for what they believe. So it's weird, like this altered kind of reality you see from Twitter, where it's always within the perfect rhetorical fortress. You have to have some technique that allows you to always win, win even if you're wrong. Being someone who has a large following on Instagram, I noticed that if I did one on COVID or vac- thoughts about what was going on in the data on the vaccine, my account got completely dialed down. Like my reach got dialed down, I'd get shadow banned, you wouldn't be able to search my name. And it's noticeable. And to say that that doesn't exist, I'm like, okay, like the gaslighting in that, it's like, just tell me it exists. Just tell me that it just tell the truth. And I think that's the danger of even censorship is who gets to decide what is the appropriate message? Because if I look- that is the problem. (laughs) Yeah, because I look at- the fact checking and the all that kind of stuff from the last two or three years. And there's a lot of fact checks that are now very true. And Absolutely. they were true at the time. They just chose experts that didn't agree with the other expert. And here's the thing, and this is chapter two of Canceling of the American Mind. I'm handing this in in, in about in, oh, I in can't about wait a to read it. month or two. I'm, yeah, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty pleased with it. Um, it, it. It's an opportunity to say, put a lot of the data in one place and say a lot of things. But the second chapter is all about Think about what you're doing to expertise um, right. and the value of expertise. And I think that one of the most da- harmful things that happened in 2020, which was a terrible year for freedom of speech, was uh, the what people would think of as the noble lie. Um, yeah. So like a small thing that mattered a lot was early on in COVID when they started telling you that you didn't uh, that masks don't stop the spread, but by the way, we need to hoard the masks for the frontline workers. And it's kind of like, okay, that doesn't even make sense. That, that, that right. Either these work or they don't. 
Um, and meanwhile, because this was being said by authority, I had people I love and respect very much being like, I can't believe people are wearing masks. These things clearly don't work. Who, you know, two months later were saying everyone needs to wear a mask. And it's okay to be wrong. I want to yeah. be really clear what I'm saying here. Being wrong about it is one thing. But when it's transparently someone lying for your own good, trust and authority blow uh, is blown away. And there were many things that happened in 2020 so in particular, many. but also since, that are devastating to people's faith and authority. And that's a dangerous situation for a democracy to be in. Yeah, I see that for sure. Like, I don't trust public health anymore at all. Like, I don't believe anything they say. I don't trust my politicians in Canada. I certainly, I mean, in the U.S., I certainly have mixed reviews too, but, <laughs> you know, sure where... <laughs> right, right. And... And I, you know, I think people around the world are feeling that way because what you said about even the noble lie of the mass, like especially was, the noble lie, though, right. like, like that we we will lie to you for your own good if it's especially important, and we get to determine that it's important. And ironically, when they finally said wear a mask, they didn't recommend N95s and surgicals; they recommended mm -hmm. cloth masks. So those were available when the noble lie was said. So that's what really blows up even the trust even further. But, I, you know, I don't think many people understand that distinction or that specific detail that really says, well, cloth masks were all of, always available. They said, you, they said turn a T-shirt into a mask. Why is this generally sourced or rising out of colleges? Like what's specific about campuses and colleges and professors like getting canned like why is that seem to be like an epicenter or a birthplace of this yeah well i think it attracts a i, I think it attracts a particular kind of mindset as part of the problem you know I, I talk about i've been writing this essay in my head called fight the guardians um and what i mean by that is is the whole sort of like plato's republic which i believe was him actually saying that this would be a utopian form of government. People claim that it's actually an allegory about the soul, but I'm like, no, I think he's <laughs> yeah. actually saying that he <laughs> thinks people like him should be in charge of everything because they're smarter than everybody else. And they can see the form of the truth, like the one eternal form of truth and only really smart people can see that. And it's a mentality that's very common among intellectuals. It is very historically dangerous. And, and um, it's, it's this epistemic arrogance that I talk about. Mm -hmm. And the thing about liberalism is it trusts more in sort of dispersed decision making. And even if, the, you know, like you're usually better off in a lot of cases taking the guess of like a, um, a thousand average people uh, than, you know, certainly by going by the, uh, the, the dictatorship of, uh, of the smartest is going to you know, definitely get you in a lot, a, a lot, a lot of trouble. <laughs> but one thing that made it a lot worse, frankly, and it's something that um, is, is still, I remember talking about this at Yale when I was pointing out like how little viewpoint diversity there is among professors and how much worse it is um, even um, uh, among administrators. The massive expansion of the bureaucratic class at universities um, is overwhelmingly left-leaning and with a very sort of activist mentality that essentially like it's their, their part of their job is to sort of police what, what, what people say and to go after professors like, you know, if they say the wrong thing. And this leads to an illiberal men, uh, mentality that essentially it makes sense that they would turn on speech because they think they they are the guardian class that can actually decide what should or should not be uh, be yeah. said. 
and if you really believe that out of yourself, then, then free speech is in your way. Mm, then diverse thought, diverse speech is actually in opposition to uh, the sort of your It's a opinion. threat to your expertise and yeah. authority. Yeah, which then just reinforces everything. You know, it's just like it keeps feeding itself. And where college, when I went to college, I finished in uh, 01. You know, there was a lot of diverse thought. And I'm curious, what is the, I don't know which way you'd like to start, but I'm curious, what is the benefit of free speech? Like, how does that actually make us as a culture better? And then what is the cost of not having it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think free speech has been the best tool in human history for uh, innovation, wealth creation, understanding. And this is the least appreciated one of all, peace. Because inherent in the idea of freedom of speech is that the way we usually solve conflict in human history um, is frankly through violence or the threat of violence. And sometimes people call the, you know, the founding of the United States, um, usually in comparison to the French Revolution, um, the conservative revolution. And I think that's just nonsense. It's a way of dismissing it. Because the First Amendment, in one sentence, the founders were trying to get rid of the reasons why uh, Europeans had been murdering them, each other for centuries, that we will no longer, uh, that everyone's free to their opinion, uh, that everyone's, uh, that the press is free, that you have freedom, not only of religion, but freedom from state imposed religion, those things together in one sentence, they tried to say, these are no longer things we will be murdering each other for because everybody has, has these rights. Hmm. Um, so it's an incredibly ambitious idea. Um, and what are the benefits? The, I think one of the most important ones that is not not fully appreciated is simply understanding the world as uh, as it is. And this is the, the the reason why I object so much to kind of the guardian class. There's this idea that that the important thing is the form of objective truth, and then they, they can jump into because objective truth is hard to know. Therefore, if that's the goal of free speech, then free speech is not that important. It, it's a it's a convoluted mm. argument to begin with. But really, free speech, in a lot of cases, it's about knowing the little things. It's about knowing, you know, the, the price of wine in another city is actually turns out is incredibly important. But also the fact that, you know, like this town, two towns over from you is actually pretty mad that the mayor of your town is valuable to know. Um, matters of preference, matters of, um, you know, prediction, all of these things, they come from a, 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 a epistemically humble but distributed wisdom. Um, that is simply impossible in a regime of top-down censorship. So like uh, where there's only a, like a, a one way of thought or one that's accepted, you actually don't end up with the knowledge and wisdom that comes from, yes. as you said, like if you were to pull a thousand people on a decision to make, you'd make a better decision than to just pull uh, 10 experts in the zone, you know? Yeah. Huh. So the bias that comes from it. I mean, Hayek talks about, um, uh, you know, a, a great thinker uh, of the 20th century t talks about just, you know, about the value of distributed knowledge and how we can't uh, over uh, underestimate that. Meanwhile, people who believe in top-down societies really think that you can have this expert class that runs everything, and the philosopher king will make uh, will, will make everything better. And then there are just there are simple aspects of the uh, of the argument about human rights. Um, and this is one of the things that I found so frustrating about the book, the, you know, the first, 
um, was partially because it doesn't take seriously uh, the idea that around the time of the founders, people like Immanuel Kant were making the argument that free speech is, of course, a natural right that applies to people that you'd have to rationally to part of being human, that part of you is to tell your story, to explain who you are. And that even though there is a tendency among uh, philosophers to sneer at the idea of natural natural rights, they somehow managed to also have appreciation for the idea of human rights. And it's mm. like, well, what are, human rights are natural rights. Like, <laughs> There are assertions that people that every person is owed certain rights, um, uh, as and in the original version of human rights, freedom of speech was central to that. What is the the cost to us as a society then of not being? Because again, when you were talking about this expert class that gets to decide, is there a both and? To that's what I was actually wondering. Is there like a the embracing of diverse thought? and that impacts or influences. Man, I guess the paradox of that is that the expert class has to be open to influence from... Yes. Which I don't know that that exists. You can have epistemically uh, modest, you can have epistemically humble experts. Um, and people actually, frankly, you know, and there's even research on this. Sometimes there's an idea, um, and you see this both on the left and the right, that uh, you have to be decisive, that, that you have to show that you know everything and that you're utterly confident that these following 10 things are exactly what you should do. And it actually turns out that um, people are smarter than we're usually given credit for. And that if someone comes out and says, listen, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. Um, everything uh, we're saying currently is telling us that that this pandemic is going to you know, go through this pattern or whatever, but we don't actually know this is our best information. Those people are always come off as actually far more credible, partially because they're they're being realistic and people mm-hmm. know they're being they're realistic. Being open. Meanwhile, as far as like undermining, you know, expertise, the uh, showing certainty before you can possibly know something, before any average person can tell you that this can't be known, um, it really undermines respect for expertise. And where I saw that the most in early COVID was people uh, going after the lab leak theory with the um, position of utter certainty that, like, oh, no, can't that, be that, true. that's, that's yeah. nonsense. And it's kind of like, okay, listen, I don't know if it's true, but I also know you don't know if it's true right. because we all know there hadn't been serious research. Like nobody did a massive investigation in China and we know that. So how right. are you so so being so epistemically arrogant here? And that immediately makes you like, listen, I'm not, I'm not listening to you anymore if you're always this sure that you're right without even bothering to look into something. Yeah, especially when you looked at the emails that actually fed the paper and the publication that were with Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci. You know, when all this stuff was happening, so much of the response, it might still be for someone listening right now, like those are conspiracy theories. And it's like, they're not. Like these are factual things you can look up and understand. And, you know, I... I agree with you too that I, I never thought about that. Like if you exhibit or are so certain about something that an average regular person can even be like, no. Yeah, you don't really know that. And I know you don't know that. I don't like that too, because what you feel is the flexing of the arrogance of the oh, God, expertise, yeah. you know? And I, as a pharmaceutical rep, you, <laughs> I used to experience that a fair amount from the physicians that I worked with. And, you know, there were obviously really incredible ones, but there were ones that are like, this is just how it is and no other specialists know because I'm yeah. the one who did this or studied this. Well, and, and to, to, to zoom out from, from COVID, think about, you know, the, the nutrition guidelines we grew up with. You oh, know? my God, like, right. Like unbelievably destructive, like the idea that we're supposed to be, you know, uh, 
eating way more carbs than we should. That seems pretty decided. But, but, but was that said with incredible certainty um, that, oh, no, this is the food That's pyramid? That's bad. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and as far as like a, like, a, a, like, a full, like a full-blown disaster, you know, I mean, science getting something wrong, you know, uh, uh, lead, like leaded gas and, and leaded paint. Oh, yeah. I, I think possibly one of the great, uh, like Height even, uh, my co-author Jonathan Height even thinks that that might be one of the reasons why you saw such a, uh, a increase in violent crime in the 20th century was was a somewhat higher rate of lead poisoning, frankly. And and there are, mm. there are lots of and but as far as it being you know incredibly toxic and, and harmful, and what you have to do is see history and say, wait a second, every other period before this moment was wrong about something really really important. It was actually wrong about any number of things. It was really really important. What are we wrong about? Yeah, and what's the cost of not allowing criticism? Because I know in a recent pod that I listened to from uh, Jonathan, he was talking about how, you know, I think it was called like how America got so stupid in the last 10 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah yep. And he was saying that, I think he was quoting his rabbi who was saying that when you go beyond the binary of two opinions or thoughts, you uh, inevitably find a third and it is seemingly wiser than the first two. And I think that really, to me, spoke to the beauty of disagreement and diverse mm-hmm. thought and comic. Like, it, it would imagine, or if you look at history, is it not evidenced that disagreeing on something actually led to wiser decisions, breakthroughs in science, you know, all that kind of stuff, like Nikola Tesla? You know, like you think of the earth is round versus flat, although, of course, there's still people who believe it's flat, you know, (laughs) like there's so many of these things that seem to be evidence that we are only benefited, like is the benefit of diverse thought greater than uh, the people who are hurt by the freedom of self-expression. Yeah. And the thing is, like, what's a greater hurt, you know, than being, being told that you can't tell your own story um that you can't actually share your your opinion even if e- even if it's wrong and it and that's one of the reasons why it is understood a, a, as a human right salman rushdie you know um who was horribly attacked earlier this year would talk about that it's a deep human need uh to be known and to be yeah, able to, to speak your mind and if you ever talk to people who have lived in situations where they have to be scared to speak their truth no matter how weird that may be or in some cases dead on correct, uh, as many of the dissidents, um, you know, under communism, like Solzhenitsyn and, and, and Sakharov, that you never take it for granted again. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the things that was that was um, so frustrating about cancel culture, you, you know, is uh, just this idea that suddenly we're approaching everything with this level of epistemic arrogance, you know, that, that, that we know enough to tell all of these people shut up. Meanwhile, I do have a theory, though, on, 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 what's, on what's going on. And, and yeah, I talk about it? it as being like, it's like we're in 1521. And when, when I used to study um, uh, Henry VIII and censorship during the Tudor dynasty, that was when Henry VIII first started cracking down on the use of the printing press. And he, and he said that, you know, think, you can only print things that go through my royal stationer's company as a way of censoring, you know, what, what got printed in England. And I think that was in response to a 
legitimately tremendously disruptive technology that led to an increase in the witch trials. It led to religious strife and, you know, war and all, all sorts of conflict. And if you look at what the uh, printing press was in 1521, you'd say this, this thing wasn't worth it. This, this thing was brought nothing but trouble. But if you take the long view of it, we just went through, uh, so the printing press was adding, you know, millions of people to the, to the conversation. I think it was something like, uh, there were like something like 12 million literate people uh, b- before the printing press and more than doubled, um, you know, shortly thereafter. Uh, but social media just added billions of people to the discussion. Wow. And that there is no way, there is no way that you can make that not a disruptive moment. Um, right. There's no top-down thing that Twitter could have done. There's nothing that Facebook could have done. It's unavoidably an anarchical period that's going to seem kind of crazy. But we, but if we decide to, mm. to, to give up on free speech, we lose the potential benefit of it. And, here, and here's how profound the benefit potentially is. One of the underappreciated benefits of the, of the printing press was suddenly with, with millions of more eyes on any given problem, you had this distributed network of disconfirmation because we don't usually establish truth just by getting, oh, this thing is true. It's usually a process of chipping away at the things that are not true. So it's this process, a constant process of proving what is not true. Mm-hmm. When you have a billion eyes on a problem, and uh, the, the potential, and this is going to sound very pie in the sky at, at this sort of techno um, uh, techno pessimistic moment, but there still really is a possibility of turning this distributed knowledge network into something that could be a huge boon to human innovation, human artistic uh, flourishing, to human expression, to uh, all of these things that make us better people, more advanced, that could advance society. That's still possible if we don't give up on freedom of speech. I love that. I mean, that's the beauty and the hope that can come from this. I've never thought about the initial disruptive, painful nature of it and expansive nature because, you know, I think in a lot of ways, much like nutritionists coming in the world uh, of the former food guide and disrupting that and all of a sudden saying like, hey, actually, fat's not bad and carbohydrates, uh, Cheerios should not be higher on the rating than beef, grass-fed beef, you know, like, it seems to that social media has in a way disrupted the expertise class too, because you have people with platforms and microphones that normally like a talent agent would sort or would never get on a television channel and be interviewed. And now prolific thought is coming from people that never would have gotten a microphone. And I agree with you on that. I think one thing that although the last three years has been, disruptive in terms of my beliefs and my naivety about the world, which I'm sure someone from a communist country would go, yeah, yeah, buddy. Like like my (laughs) sister lives in Mexico and part of the time. And she said to me, you know, the thing I love about Mexico is just how explicitly corrupt it often is. Like, (laughs) at least in there, you know what you're signing up for, but in other countries, the corruption is systemic. And I'm left with hope too, because people that I know who never questioned anything are now at least saying, hey, we actually want more from the people, the elected officials, from our media. You know, I never thought that our mainstream media was so biased. Yeah. Now I'm like, well, they've, they've gotten whew. more biased, though. I mean, talk about being a, a college journalist. And the shift from epistemically humble uh, journalism, which is kind of like, listen, my job is to tell you what the world looks like as best I can tell. Uh, and it's especially important for me to, to report things that I don't like. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, I'm not, uh, I don't get to decide that. That's not my call. I, I serve a societal role that's bigger than me to a, we want to change the world in a direction that's going to be positive. And I could, I mean, you know, I, I still listen to NPR, uh, National Public Radio in, in, in the U.S., but particularly during COVID uh, and, and for 2020 and 2021 in particular, when it seems really clear that you want people to come to a particular conclusion, they also stop trusting you. And there was, I remember they were, they were talking about the, the big um, stimulus package that Joe Biden had not build back better, not, not the big infrastructure one. And, I, and I'll be clear, I wanted infrastructure is, is um, something that I, I think should bring the parties together. But it was the much bigger one, you know, the multi-trillion dollar uh, one that ended up not passing. And, you know, hearing someone on NPR, uh, you know, uh, interviewing someone and saying, and actually, you know, the reporter taking back the microphone and being like, so Joe, so um, Joe Manchin not supporting this would be unconscionable, right? And it's like, hold yeah, on, dude. Like, <laughs> you're not supposed to put that word, those words, in, like, in, in people's mouths. You're supposed to be able to, just because objectivity might be a standard you never quite get to, doesn't mean you just give up on trying. Right. Do you find that social media has amplified the binaries of partisanship and um, even, you know, like the people who are free speech components, I think often it feels amplified. The people who are anti-free speech, it feels like there's, it feels like there's more rage or like more anger, yeah. um, at both directions. I feel like I've, I've, I've hit a point in my life on Twitter, um, that I'm better at walking away from it. Um, yeah, you know, I say my piece and I, I, I don't generally bother arguing on Twitter. I, I just don't think there's much of a point to it. And that might be disappointing sometimes uh, for people, but whatever, I've got a life. You've got a nervous system and a, and, and a somatic experience you got to manage. Well, it, well, exactly. Cause it just, it just, it's, it's too engrossing. It's too, um, it can be too uh, anger making and realize I'm like, why am I arguing with this person who didn't even like correctly read the thing? I like with the, the, I with the wrote 180 characters thing. and somehow they misread it. And I feel like I have to argue with this person. <laughs> Right. I, I feel like it's gotten a little bit better, um, which yeah, I, I think would be mind blowing, you know, uh, for a lot of people to hear uh, right now because they're so critical in, in the Musk age. But I don't just mean like in the past couple of months. I mean, I feel like it's gotten maybe better over the last year or so. But I do think that there was a time when social media had this kind of island of misfit toys aspect to it where people could be as, you know, as, as weird and funny and people could – uh, be trusted to get that someone was kidding or being sarcastic um, or, you know, uh, pretending to, 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 to say something stupid. And unfortunately, it got turned into sort of what, what I call a conformity engine that essentially sort of like the people, the same sort of guardian class people who think that they should be the moral judges of, of all became a little too empowered. And it became a place that actually fed partisan rancor. Um, and I, I, unfortunately I still think it, it, it is doing that. I don't think it always has to be that way though. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I wonder, um, why is it that conservatism or what would be even, it feels like what is considered right is anything right of the left. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Centrism doesn't even seem to have a home. It's just considered right wing. It seems like if you disagree with the perspective of pro-life, pro-trans, pro-all that kind of stuff, all these sensitive subjects that have a lot of nuance. They have a lot, there's so much complexity. And that's why, you know, I'm not even giving a perspective on it. What I'm saying is that like it feels like 
the instant thing that you started off with saying, like the instant saying of something being conservative, like when did conservative become perceptually to what people might identify as left wing as being evil? Yeah, I try to really own this on my own part, um, which is when I got to law school in 1997, I, you know, I was very much a lefty, you know, like I said, worked at the ACLU, you know, like the, you know, <laughs> went to Burning Man for seven years, kind of like I was, I was, <laughs> I was in like a, you know, a lefty, uh, kind of a lefty bubble. And I remember um, it was actually a gay progressive friend um, so who was definitely to, to my left who was like, well, at a party, was like, I don't remember what the context was, but he's like, well, just because someone's conservative doesn't mean they're wrong. And I remember mm. having a little bit of like a, but no, that's what we're all saying. Like, yeah. like that's what this entire community believes. So already in 97, uh. it, labeling something conservative was a way to at least get people, even people like me, who absolutely, I'd go to court to defend conservatives' free speech rights. But that lazy intellectual habit of being like, but if you put that little tag on someone as being conservative, you don't have to take them seriously, has been on campus for a long time, and particularly in elite campuses. And of course, when something is that effective as a rhetorical tool that lets you win arguments, after a while, it just gets completely out of the box. And next thing you know, you know, everybody to the uh, to the right of Karl Marx is 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 suddenly deemed a conservative because then you don't have to listen to them. It, it's a mm. very so, so I, I'm going after time. That bad way of arguing um, in canceling of the American mind, me, uh, me and Ricky are, are really trying to point out these are not actual substantive arguments. These are BS. Do you think there's an overlap or a correlation to how s people who are involved in government, let's say, for example, White House, Senates, all that kind of stuff, tend to have sort of familial lines. They tend to, you know, be from wealthy classes. Oh, cla the, the classism is all over this. Yeah. So then it's also connected to the more elite colleges. So yes. do you think it is that, like, it's that... Um, you know, how you were speaking about this sort of specific expertise. And so there's a very narrow group of people all going through the same educational pathways, all reinforcing each other's power and privilege and power of their voice. Like the fact that their voices are amplified. I'm guessing now, and I was, I forget where I was reading this, but how normally previously the media used to call out politicians and now they're at the same parties. So, yeah. you know, I'm curious your your thoughts on the co correlation. Well, actually they used to call out politicians and we're still at the same parties, you know, <laughs> where it was kind of understood that, that they're not allies, you know? Um, and, and, and that's more, uh, I'm okay with them being friends. Um, yeah, of course. But, but uh, you know, if they do something wrong, I'm calling you out. The, yeah, the fact that we get, and this is something that I, I got to experience firsthand because I, you know, come from, you know, pretty humble origins. And then I ended up at a place like Stanford and I was really, you know, I really kind of blown away to get in a, to, to be uh, in a school that like that, <laughs> that fancy. I was a little bit horrified though, at the extent to which suddenly I was considered so much smarter, you know, like it was way out of proportion to the actual accomplishment of getting in there. And it, being in these circles, the extent to which Yale and Harvard in particular matter to the lives of everyday Americans, I think is wildly excessive, particularly when you consider the fact that, I, what is it, like 45% of like white students at Yale are either legacy admissions, either the, or their parents work there wow. or they're for like the little, yeah, it's a large number. And so, I, I, so I, I talk about all these different ways that we could have a better, you know, a better country. One thing is to be less, to bring too much of it, and I'm going to sound Marxist, but too much of our ruling class from this relatively small number of schools. And I, I think about a lot of ways to do it. But the thing that I say, I keep saying that really makes people mad. Um, and it almost makes me want to say it more, even though it's not usually my personality. But on this one is 
and legacy admissions, because then maybe ruling class kids having to go to, I don't know, God forbid, state schools might actually <laughs> disrupt um, the ridiculous concentration of power, influence and wealth. I mean, between Harvard and Yale, they, uh, Yale has, I think, around $40 billion just in the bank. Um, Harvard has around $60 billion just in the bank. Like that, that's bigger than the GDP of like, I think I worked it out. It's like Lithuania, which is actually one of the richer Baltic countries. That's a hundred billion dollars, you know, just in investments on one side. Yale has more employees than it has students when it comes to administrators and faculty, almost as many uh, students wow. as administrators. Yeah, no, it, it's really out of control. And I keep it's on thinking about ways. Yeah, no, I, th I think about ways to to um, uh, to make this more fair and equitable. They, they talk a lot about equity, but I think that if you had some kind of like, I feel like we should have some kind of insanely difficult test, but anyone who can pass it gets a like prestige level bachelor's in liberal arts because you need other pathways than the way too expensive, way too bureaucratized, way too ideological um, uh, system that we currently have in the United States. Because I also think the fact that since they feel guilty for perpetuating these systems of privilege, it makes it muddies the thinking about uh, when you when you think from like a guilty perspective, you end up coming with also bad ideas. So I, I think that the extent to which higher education kind of distorts the marketplace of ideas in the United States is really quite profound. When it seems like even unconsciously, there would be no motivation to diversify how admissions are done. Because if it, unconsciously, at least, but also consciously, humans want to hold on to the status, the power. Oh, even, sure. Because I think of the irony of the left, which, again, I would have identified with, about the obsession with diversity, which, of course, is important. But diverse thought is also part of that. It's not just diverse of identity and, and race and gender and all that. It's diversity of thought. And gosh, this like if everybody thinks the same way and reinforces each other's thoughts, it's frankly, it would be really boring to be around them because I love that people disagree. A lot of people disagree with things I say. And there, I learn actually quite a bit from being disagreed with. Like the other day, a friend gave me some serious feedback on a belief I had. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's very true. And it was just yeah. very helpful. It completely shattered a paradigm of something I couldn't see had I not been open to listening to her. Yeah. Group polarization, I think, is one of the most um, important sort of like findings in social psychology. We talk actually a lot about it. Um, the minimal difference studies that essentially like you give someone like a red shirt and a blue shirt and how quickly they suddenly feel a lot more positively about the person in the red shirt for yeah. the dumbest reason possible. So we're very sort of uh, tribal. We have a very strong tribal um, instinct. Uh, and we're doing so many things in higher education, in social media to push people more and more towards their tribe. So one of the things we're going to be talking about is research um, that uh, shows or at least you know, makes a strong argument that, you know, cancel culture and social media is one of the reasons why you had this, you know, sort of right wing backlash, you know, um, all, all throughout the Trump administration. Even January 6th is, is one of the arguments because. People don't stop believing what they uh, think if you say that they can't say that on social media or kick them off. Actually, they tend to become even more convinced that they must yeah, it be amplifies right. It. But even worse, it puts them in circles where the, uh, people don't – since they don't change their opinion, they're just like, OK, I guess I can't talk to people who disagree with me about my crazy ideas about the lizard people. So I'm just going to talk to the lizard people people. And, of course, they just mm. get more and more arguments on their side and become much more convinced that they're right. This is – 
a thought that already was in existing constitutional law. Um, it was nice to get to study a lot more social psychology with my friend John Haidt because it's also a, a phenomenon that, that there's tons of research on. And meanwhile, like we seem to be doing everything on our power to make to, to push ourselves into more extreme little silos where we see the other person as unconscionably either stupid or evil, um, which mm-hmm. is not not a healthy situation no. ever, let alone for a pluralistic democracy. Yeah, to instantly villainize. Again, there's that righteousness that protects our own perspective, you know, and it, yeah. and it creates a hierarchy. And when there's a hierarchy, you can't see eye to eye. You don't respect the other person's perspective. So you're not going to learn from a perspective that you don't respect. Oh, and I did want to add one thing into that. And yeah. one of the reasons why I loved working with John Haidt is that I had this idea from my own personal struggles with anxiety and depression that, um, you know, I, I was hospitalized in 2007 as a danger to myself. I was you know, going to the hardware store to get stuff to kill myself. Um, I was in a bad way. And it was partially the, the exhaustion and alienation of being in the culture world all the time. It really gets to you. Um, and I, I, when I have other friends going through it, you know, I always say, it's like, well, I'm glad I had my breakdown in 2007. So I got, at least I got it out of the way. <laughs> but while I was recovering from that, I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy. And CBT is all about getting in the habit, and it doesn't work just knowing it intellectually, of talking back to the exaggerated, overgeneralized voices in your head and getting in the habit of, of speaking, speaking back to them that, that, uh, that, that catastrophize, for example, that like mm-hmm. if this little – if someone says something – that sounds um, uh, rude, you know, uh, you can either go like, oh, well, m- maybe they just meant this thing. Or you, you can tell people, obsess on it, uh, figure out, do mind reading, engage in fortune telling, catastrophize. <laughs> yeah. If you feel bad, engage in emotional reasoning. And I'm kind of like, are we telling young people to engage in what are called cognitive distortions? Because if we are, and it seems like we are, that's going to make them more depressed. That's going to make them more anxious. And that's also going to be terrible for freedom of speech. And that was the argument I, I, I made to Height in 2014, even though my own staff was like, that's weird. <laughs> that's a weird idea, Greg. I don't, I don't know if it's social psychology stuff or, or um, uh, CBT stuff. And we made the argument in 2014 and then in our, in our article and book in 2018. And the thing that horrifies us, and we really would have rather been wrong than see the absolute devastation um, that uh, that has hit young people when it comes to depression, anxiety, suicide, uh, self-harm, mood disorders. And when people like try to dismiss what we're saying and coddling because they don't like the title, I'm like, uh, because they'll, they'll fix it. I'm like, oh, you're just saying kids are spoiled. I'm like, no, I'm saying we're teaching them the in- the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. So you should not be surprised that there's a mental health disaster. That's powerful. Yeah, I know in Coddling, you guys talk about how the perfect tool for especially a young girl in terms of bullying or or managing their social or creating social anxiety and anxiety in general um, because of how girls tend to deal with conflict and, and uh, belonging or struggling to belong is through social means is social media. And I had not considered the how much that would amplify, you know, for me, having a social media platform and engaging in conversations on there, I started to witness a couple of years ago just the level of anxiety I was experiencing yeah. from, you know, I, in The Social Dilemma, they, they talk about how no one's psyche or body is designed to hear the opinions of 
10,000 people, let alone millions of people. And, and I know 24 it, hours a day for the rest of your life. Right. And and where someone will always be in opposition to why there will, yeah. and cancel culture, I think, really heightened that because what it re- reduced, even if it was, wasn't present in large quantities, it reduced psychological safety it, massively. I, I think social media itself is not psychologically safe in terms of self-expression. And not that I think you should be safe to have all your ideas agreed with, Oh, but that you shouldn't face uh, social exile, which cancel culture threatened that to everybody. Well, and 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 here's the thing that I think that, that that makes me saddest of all about this is how much it's messed with interpersonal trust. Yeah, speak more on that. Yeah, a lot of times conservatives will ask me about safe spaces because they hear this term and they're like, "I hate that term." And what does it mean? And my answer is always like, "Well, which of the eight different definitions of safe spaces do you mean?" If they mean, you know, when it's used uh, like a sword, you know, like we saw at Yale with my friend Nicholas Christakis, where it's like, "This is a safe space, and you can't bring your opinions in here." Then that's inappropriate. That that's using um, your claim, your, your subjective claim of feeling not feeling psychologically safe to censor other people. But if you're saying, you know, I have a, an affinity club um, where we were like-minded. That that that's fine. But the meaning that I like the most um, that w- that is what it meant when I was in college was when you said it's okay, it's a safe space. What you were saying was you can be real, you can talk about difficult stuff. Nothing's leaving the room. You can trust us, and that's a big deal to that's be able to be like deal. to talk about really hard things. Like you know, the people talking about whether it's abuse or like when it comes to the political stuff, talking about like you know, like people will talk about their parents being bigots, you know, for for example. But with the idea that kind of like this difficult stuff is going to stay among friends because we are friends and we trust each other, right? Or at mm-hmm. least we're even if we're not close friends, that there's an idea that that, that it's um I'm not going to go out and try to get you ruined. And kids are growing up in a situation where it's like, if I say the wrong thing and Hannah over there can, can uh, you know, put it on social media and get, she can get great points for calling me yeah. out because then she looks heroic. She has a, a, a moment of feeling, you know, um, like she did something good for the world. Savior, yeah. And he, it doesn't even have to be accurate or it could be accurate, but it, but it completely undermines interpersonal trust. And when you look at the numbers of these, uh, how many fewer close friends young people are reporting as well. I think that some of this is, you know, uh, frankly, cancel culture. I, I think it is this idea that if you have to be much more paranoid about someone ruining your life, you have fewer friends. Yeah, you're going to have a smaller circle. You're not going to keep acquaintances. You're also probably not going to surround yourself with diverse thought. Yeah, that too. That too. And it makes polarization worse too. That's a great point. The idea that you're, you know, when you were defining safe space, I think about in romantic or interpersonal relationships, familial yeah. friendships, the idea that I can't say something that's going to cause you emotional dysregulation, because yeah. if I do that, then I'm not being, I have to, so I have to never say anything that causes you to get dysregulated. That's not a, a relationship I ever want to exist in, because of course, Romantic relationships are by design dysregulating so we can learn how to disagree and grow and hold two perspectives and honor both. Like, I don't think navigating a a conflict successfully means agreeing. I think it means that both views can exist and that's it. You know, and and we probably come to a third perspective that that holds both. It's another way that like spending a lot more time abroad and, and you know, growing up with a, a lot more kind of feeling a little bit like a foreigner in the United States uh, yeah. w- was very helpful um, is that 
And one of the reasons why Height and I are such good friends um, is that we both had a moral intuition when we were in elite circles that the way you're talking about, I always refer to this this discussion with a friend um, in San Francisco who would talk about how much he hated Kansas. And what he meant by that is he hated, you know, um, religious middle America. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would point out all the problems with this. Like one of them is kind of like, okay, so you hate them because they're conservative. You should know that like, you know half of them vote vote Democrat, kind of like, so you can't dismiss, like, even if that's your dumb reason for not disliking them, you're also overgeneralizing. But at the same time, like, since I come from more of the international perspective, I'm kind of like, okay, this is what this sounds like to my ears. You know what? I hate Croatia and I hate Croatians. Mm-hmm. And it's like, doesn't, doesn't that sound kind of gross, you know, like, like a little bit like you're overgeneralizing in a gross way. Because what I see is kind of like, yes, it's pretty typical that people in, in, in the cities don't are, are pretty hard on uh, any country's, you know, religious minority, you know, like, like th- that, that's, a, it's a dynamic that isn't actually exceptional. It is something that is pretty, but they don't see in some ways that they're acting like, they're acting like elites have always acted. And what I'd love to see is um, I think people might check themselves a little bit better on being dismissive on what uh, uh, people they don't like said if they had a better sense of what global opinion actually looked like. Mm-hmm. Not uh, like first of all in the United States, and but they could dismiss that of like, oh, those people are ignorant. But I'm like, you're also saying that everybody else on the planet is ignorant on this too, and that's okay to say, but you shouldn't say that w- without having a moment of being like, well, I guess I could. I guess maybe, you know, I don't think they're all stupid. I don't think, I can't possibly think 99% of the earth is stupid and evil, right? Or maybe you could. I mean, I, I would be deeply uncomfortable with that. Yeah, it wouldn't make uh, for very much safety walking around, <laughs> you know? It, well, it's very epistemically arrogant, you know? Like, it, it's oh. just kind of like, you know, I'm the one person who got it right in all of human history. Good for me. Yeah, I, I think as a society, as a culture, this movement back to diverse thought just seems like, a must. And if it doesn't, it feels like the systems will, if they get more magnified in terms of the singularity of their thought, the cost of that will, is that ultimately the path to dictatorships and tyrants? Is that ultimately where we go? If you said something like that to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, oh, you're catastrophizing. Like that's yeah. not, you know, <laughs> that, that's not possible. I, I, it, it feels more like we're more in danger for, uh, the Republic. Actually, I was about to say that any time in my career, I would say actually I was more pessimistic about the fate of the Republic last year and the year before. This year, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, are we coming to our senses now? Are are we actually starting to get back a little bit of it? I so feel I, that. I, at, the, at the moment, I'm feeling I'm feeling actually somewhat optimistic. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, like um, the Ukrainians, fi- you know, fighting off Putin was something I never saw coming in a million years. And talk about something that made me feel like. Maybe we'll yeah. be okay. You know, yeah. I talk about intermediated conflict uh, in Coddling the American Mind. Height and I talk about it. And it's actually our friend Eric Horowitz, but he talked about how intermediated conflict, where essentially, like, if from K through 12, you're, you're told that, you know, um, this guy bothers you, well, you have to tell an adult. Don't figure out a way to navigate it yourself. Then you get to college, you go, oh, this guy bothers you, go to the bias related incident program and, and you know, call the hotline. Literally, there are actually hotlines to report on your friends and wow. your professors if they say things that you think are biased. 
then you go to corporations and you go to you, you go to HR. The problem, there's a million problems with this, but one of them is that in a free society, we're supposed to be, at least in some legal sense, equals. If every conflict is settled by some higher authority, that's not thinking like someone in a democratic society. Right. That's like thinking like someone who's begging for the guardian class to be in charge of them. Well, I'm curious, what is our way out? Like, what, what, how do we navigate this and broaden our own biases? Broad, you know, how do we turn towards free speech or be advocates of it? And, and I'm guessing people listening or not, you know, some of them for sure. It's no small tasks, Greg. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, li- a lifelong. Well, <laughs> actually, if you send me 1999, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lifetime struggle. Um, freedom is always under threat. Freedom of speech is always under threat. Republics, um, I mean, the founders were very aware of the fact that republics historically did not last very long. And I think step one is not taking this for granted. Um, you know, uh, free societies ha- have a incredibly positive, um, uh, you know, history if taken overall, if you have a good understanding of what the alternatives are. I, I, mm-hmm. I think that Douglas, Douglas Murray said it well, like when, when you hear people arguing about this being the worst of all worlds, it's kind of like always ask compared to what? Because uh, I, I think that we are in danger of taking for granted what we, what we actually have. I hope it doesn't take a calamity to, to make us even better appreciate it. But I hope that we get that there is something special about um, small L liberalism, um, mm. the idea of sort of free societies, uh, uh, free trade of ideas, um, uh, the idea of, of being epistemically humble that your fellow democratic citizens have a right to their opinion as well, just as much as you do. Getting back there, uh, you know, I'm – Height and I are doing, doing our best to figure out ways to do that. I do think that we need, you know, alternative ways of uh, from K through 12 education up through up through higher ed that can do a better job of teaching people, you know, the habits of living in a, in a, in a small D democratic society. Um, but it's like I said, it's it, it's a lifelong struggle. Yeah, I definitely see a move away from academic education too. like there's the need for college is kind of becoming less and less because we can get specialized education in other places, depending on what we want to do, of course. Well, here's the thing that that, that just blows me away. Colleges still often have the temerity to say that tuition only covers about half the cost of educating a single student for a year. And you got to remember that in the United States, like Sarah Lawrence College, I think is only like $70,000 a year. And I'm kind of like, Give me one hundred and forty thousand dollars, and I will educate like crazy. Right. Uh, you know, and the first thing you do is like, here's the stack of books this high. It's one of the reasons why, like, figuring out some better way to do this, because right now, when I hire from Yale's and Stanford's and, and Harvard's, because I mean, I learn a lot. I have about a hundred employees, and I learn probably more from being an employer than I learn from you know, the books I read and from the, the, the law that I read. Yes. If you graduate from one of the fancies, I, I have a hard time not calling them fancies. <laughs> you are probably, you're probably pretty smart um, in high school um, and you are probably pretty hardworking. And that's about all you know about them. Usually they know a lot about their major and that's it. Mm-hmm. But you don't know if they know how to write. You don't know if they know how to think. You don't know if they understand anything about what the world actually looks like. You don't know if they know statistics. And everybody needs to know statistics. Like all of these things that should be considered sort of like the new liberal arts. Um, And I think that there are better ways to tell if someone is smart, motivated, and actually knows things than this ridiculously 
expensive system that we have now. I think about what, when we interview people for jobs at Fire, there was this idea that um, of eduBlocks, um, where essentially you could pat like you could re- every time you read a book, you could pass like a little quiz on it, and you get a little block saying that you read this book. Mm-hmm. Because when we interview people for Fire, we're looking for people who are one of us in the sense of like free speech is a passion of theirs. Right. And I know that, like, if, if you could actually see, oh, yeah, of course I read those three dozen books on this, you know, as opposed to someone who doesn't actually do this in their spare time. That would be a much better signal that we should be hiring this person than someone said, I, I graduated top of fancy school. I'm curious. Uh, first off, thanks for coming on and sharing all your thoughts and your knowledge and your expertise and your experience. Uh, I'm, as I said at, at the beginning, I've been a super fan and, oh. and I just feel uh, honored to be able to have this conversation. Thanks with for you having me. Share. Oh, of course. And when your new book comes out, I'd love to have you back on to talk about it and and, and share all your insights from that. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. And uh, for people listening, where can they find more of you and uh, all the stuff that you're talking about? Thefire.org. Um, that's, uh, the foundation for individual rights and expression. We're doing a, a, a campaign on trying to get people to understand and appreciate free speech better. Um, we're trying to reach, um, you know, a million people in the, in, in the, in the next couple of years. And our research shows, and this is something to, to, to make you somewhat more optimistic. Our research shows that right and left, there are a ton of people who still really care about free speech and free thought. And we're trying to identify the existing base out, out there to make sure that we don't, that we're able to hand free speech down to our kids and grandkids. Yeah, if it went with the same passion and tenacity that cancel culture has gone through colleges, which might actually be how it occurs. Because, of course, when we get to a place where people are reactive, it usually comes with that energy of, of rage and transformation. Yeah, so appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, being such an advocate that I can say whatever I want on here with uh, conscientiousness, of course. So appreciate you and your time. Real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.